Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for small to medium-sized companies and organizations by designing world-class strategic plans, but more importantly, help keeping them accountable to actually get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. We're really excited about our guest that we have here today, who is Dr. David Stern. He's the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Xperity, a GTCR portfolio company and a leading software and services company providing integrated solutions to more than 50% of the urgent care market. He spent over the last three decades improving the urgent care experiences for providers and driving a patient-centered healthcare revolution. He's also the founding board member of the Urgent Care Association and a current board member of the Urgent Care Foundation. He has also been awarded the Lifetime Membership and Outstanding Achievement Awards from the Urgent Care Association. David, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you, Carl. Great to be here. So super excited. We had a great conversation when getting the opportunity to learn a little bit more about what you do. But for a practical purposes, what does, tell us more about your company and what do you do? So uh, Xperity is a software company, first and foremost. We provide electronic medical records for urgent care centers. So uh, we, we provide, but we provide a lot more than just the EMR and electronic medical record software where the doctor will document the visit. We allow patients to check in online. They can put in their, their credit card and their insurance from home before they even come into the clinic. Uh, they can do their full registration online. And then all, we have software that processes them at the front desk and all the way through the, the whole visit. And then afterwards, uh, survey software to ask them how the visit went and give feedback back to the clinics and even provide a, a portion of that software to allow the clinics to uh, do de detractor recovery, as we call it, for those who give them a negative uh, review, because it's so important that when somebody gives you a negative review and you recover them, it, it said that they're actually bigger raving fans than if they had had a great experience. So uh, we, we help them do, do all of that. And we also uh, employ a little over 100 radiologists to read uh, x-rays for our urgent care clients. So your story of how you got to here is, is pretty fascinating. So how in the heck did you get the idea of going from doing work to running a business? Yeah, so I was I was running a business with a, a partner of mine. Uh, we had we had six urgent care centers back in 1998, and I realized uh, there was this new thing called the electronic medical record. I knew that was a secret. It would. I knew that many of our that our own clinics were missing a million dollars of revenue a year, and so uh, I went to my partner and said, "I'm going to go out and find one of these electronic medical records. I'm sure they've figured out all, how to solve all these problems." And they said, okay, you can be off the floor. I didn't have to see patients for two months to find that electronic medical record. Looked, looked at everything out there, came back, told my partners, nothing's gonna work. Unfortunately, it'll slow us down. It'll cost us more money. If we, if we capture the million dollars, we're gonna have to spend an extra $1.5 million. It's not gonna work. Uh, 
Uh, and so my partner said to me, well, David, then we need to make, a, make our own EMR. He saw a great opportunity, which it was a great opportunity. I thought he was absolutely crazy. I don't know anything about software. That was a crazy idea, but it's great to have partners around you who actually say, I believe in you, you can do it, which is what my partner John said. And so uh, make a long story short, I, I discovered we were missing a million dollars of revenue a year. I knew the software could, could bring us that revenue and with a very, very um, rudimentary product four months later, we started capturing that million dollars a year. My partners agreed to let me have the million dollars a year for three years, uh, I, they, but I had to promise them year four, we'd be break even. It's exactly what happened. Took a million dollars of losses each of the first three years, which we uh, had supplemented the urgent cares uh, with the million dollars of additional revenue. And after that, two years later, we had paid back all the debt and we were off and running uh, as uh, very much an independent company, although the same three owners of the Urgent Cares own the uh, software company. So when I'm curious about that million dollars being valued, how, how is that being created? You know, what, what, what is it specifically about electronic records that was creating value? So it was, I discovered because I had become a certified professional coder, not software coder, but a coder, medical coder, um, I discovered uh, something that applied uniquely to urgent cares that meant that the average urgent care provider uh, was not getting credit for the work they were doing and didn't know how to get the credit for it. I even did an all-day coding session for our doctors and said, guys, this is how you do it. It's easy. You can get the money. Uh, and, and not only were we getting the money, we get the credit for the work we were doing. So uh, they, they sort of tried, I would say. But after two or three weeks, uh, they went right, right back to baseline where they were before, leaving that million dollars on the table. I realized training the doctors, that's like herding cats. We weren't going to get the doctors anywhere. It's, you know, it's hard to train somebody that already knows everything. So <laughs> we, we ended up deciding, okay, we can't train them. We've got to automate this such that they'll get the credit without even realizing they're getting the credit. So we created these, believe it or not, our, our initial uh, electronic template was actually paper. They would, they, we gave them a two-sided paper uh, that they could write on. And then we, we would analyze it with, with a computer uh, using a lot of optical character recognition and whether or not they had filled out so many pixels in a box. And we'd give them credit for the box if they had uh, done that. We also had people verifying that they had checked that box or not if the computer wasn't sure. Uh, all of that we got out, out the door in four months. And we're rapidly uh, capturing that the credit for for that uh, for that coding, as it's called. So in many cases, they they were averaging. In most cases, they're averaging about twenty dollars more revenue per visit. Just as simple as that. And we wow. took we we would charge them two dollars for that two sided piece of paper. Uh, we were essentially printing two dollar bills, and uh, they were getting twenty dollars. It was a great uh, a great value prop for our for our clients. So this must have not have been easy software to create. I mean, forgive me here, but doctor's handwriting isn't known to be very good. So how how did you, I mean, brilliant people, but there's something to the nature of just scribbling something on a piece of paper. Yep. How, how did you get the OCR to work so to actually well, discern into the right characters? We threw away OCR fairly quickly, honestly. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. We, we created the app where the important stuff that we really needed to be to get exactly right, first name, last name, date of birth, that stuff had to be typed in by the front desk staff. 
uh, we just could not, or we could not OCR the, the, right, the writing even of the front desk people, let alone the providers. So uh, very quickly OCR went, went away, but uh, we did find a software that was amazing, uh, used for surveys. Nobody had ever used the software anywhere near as intensely as we did. We were, we were evaluating over a hundred fields on page one and over a hundred fields on page two. And uh, this, this was basically software that was used to do a 10, 10 question survey for Disney is what they had designed it for. So they had never seen anybody use it like we were using it, but it worked amazingly well. And uh, uh, it, it allowed us to, to create a, a real true disruptive technology. Nobody was going to take, going to say, oh, the secret to the future of, uh, of medicine is to document on a paper template and scan it in. Uh, I mean, even when we first came to market back in uh, 2002, nobody thought that was the future. And that's, that's always one of the keys to a disruption is nobody believes your, your, your product's any good. Everyone thinks it's a lousy product, but you're giving real, real value to your client. Just like the Japanese cars when they first came out in the US gave real value to the client, the poor person who couldn't buy an American car. And these were much cheaper. They fell apart, made in Japan, meant, made, meant, made to self-destruct, but it provided value to the right people and they created that disruptive technology. And now uh, Japanese uh, auto manufacturing is synonymous with quality. Uh, and over time, they were able to get there. We, we've had much the same journey from this disruptive paper technology uh, to a full-fledged uh, electronic suite for, for our clients. And we're continuing to add more and more features and functionality that are available nowhere else to our clients. So it seems like one of the secret sauces you had in this process is you actually were using it yourselves, right? So you gained that firsthand experience. Why do you think that was valuable versus just selling a product? Yeah, it was extremely valuable. Uh, so much of what we've created over the last 20 years are things I thought of right when we started. We need to do this. We need to do that. And there's a bunch we haven't even been able to do yet, believe it or not, because uh, uh, as they say, it's software. Anything you can do, anything with time and money, but you need to have enough time and enough money. And uh, uh, we've we've only had twenty years, uh, but uh, being able to being able to know the clinical flow backwards and forwards. I, I every customer who bought my product, it didn't matter who the decision maker was, I had sat in their seat. I had worked the front desk. I had checked patients in. I had uh, uh, I, I had uh, done all the documentation. I knew what what you needed to do in the clinic. I had run billing in our clinics for quite a long time. Um, and so everything you did, plus more, I had shoveled the front sidewalk of, of the clinics when it was snowing as well. That didn't help me much. But the truth is I just knew how these clinics operated. I knew that everything else was a, was a square peg in a round hole. And so creating that square peg that fit or that round peg that fit in the round hole was so, was so much easier for somebody that just lived, eat, ate and breathed the uh, the industry for so many years. What surprised you the most as you were scaling the business and started to expand? So so here you you've you 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 developed your key product. I loved it how you kind of had the MVP, the minimum viable product, right, to get it out the door to get something to work, and then and then you went to the next step of really revising it to to scale. When you were in that scaling process and you started to really expand the market to, to people who are using it, what, what surprised you most in that process? So I was surprised at how long people were willing to wait for us to have a truly electronic version. People love the paper. 
And so for seven years, we didn't have a, an electronic version of our software. I thought we would do it in two or three years. That was very surprising. The second thing that was surprising in, in scaling the business was how much I needed to learn and change. I had to learn how to read a, a, all three of the financial statements and I had needed to know how they work together. Um, and I needed to change change my method uh, of operations and hire really good executives who could do things for, that I used to do all the time. Up until five years ago, believe it or not, for so for 15 years, every single person who, got, who bought our software had gotten a demo from me. Wow. <clears throat> That's not exactly scalable. <clears throat> so um, actually I told, I told a, a fellow who had run a whole bunch of businesses that and he said, that's, that's ridiculous. You, sh you shouldn't be doing the demos. I said, no, Jim, I, I could do, I could do demos better than anybody else. Cause I've been in the seat of my client, no matter what position they have. And he said, that's nonsense. There are people who do demos professionally. They can do it better than you. Um, I wasn't sure I believed it, but he knew a lot more than me. And that's the important thing. When you're talking to these people who know more than you been there, done that, if they tell you you're, you're, you're spouting off nonsense, you just might be spouting off nonsense. You might really believe it, but it's still nonsense. So finally, uh, it was a two-year search to find somebody to do the demos. We found somebody who was a client. She, uh, she actually was running, uh, uh, the, uh, was running uh, a bunch of clinics and somebody bought her clinics and fired her and she was perfect. She, we, we put her in the seat. And I remember uh, about, Three months, four months later, uh, having she said, I need you on this demo because you need to explain certain functionality. I don't know it very well. Uh, so I came on the demo and you know what? She did the demo better than I could have done it. That's absolutely true. Uh, and so that sort of morphing who you are and what you do is so critical because you're going from a startup company to a company uh, with a, you know, a valuation of over a billion dollars and a uh, a revenue over $200 million that you, that, that what, what got you here won't get you there. If you remember that book where it shows a, a, a business person climbing a ladder and then there's no, the, the rungs have all fallen off uh, on the ladder above them. You have to jump to another ladder. You have to transform yourself. You have to morph yourself to be the right executive for the next stage of the business. Um, and quite honestly, that's why founders are so scary to investors. Uh, because they're not sure you can morph. They see these rough edges. They see these things you think you have to do uh, in order to be successful. And they know that in this next stage, you're not going to be able to do that, whatever it is. And so you have to really be looking for what do I need to change this week? <laughs> because next week, I'll have to change another thing. It's almost weekly, you're, you're realizing I need to change this. I need to change that. And uh, you, it, I've been able to do it so far. But I will say there have been times where I, I made changes like that sales uh, presentation changes. I made those changes maybe 10 years too late. Uh, and had I made those changes sooner, uh, we'd probably be in a, different, uh, in a different situation and even further ahead than we are now. I think your insights behind that, you know, we get the privilege and opportunity, right, to talk with extraordinary people here on the podcast on a regular basis with clients, et cetera. And there is sometimes this belief you can take an old strategy that worked for you successfully and perhaps you made you so much money you never have to work again and they just believe that they could take that exact same strategy to a new organization it's going to work and there's so many different variables plus scaling different stages of the company that frankly that just often isn't true until they experience it right and then and then they realize it how do you 
you know, it was interesting. Did it take that experience of, of finally seeing the person who took over to do the demos for you to go, aha, this really does work? You know, what, what were the, was it, was the outside counsel? Was it that you were too busy? You know, what finally got you over the top of you finally were willing to let go? Uh, so I found the right person, but more importantly, uh, people were buying another software before they got to the demo uh, because they didn't, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't scalable and I was already running the company and doing so many other jobs that, that there was, we were losing sales because of it. So when the new person took over, I, I sat with her two or three demos uh, and then I moved on and I saw sales were, were continuing just fine without me there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, data-driven business, that's the most important thing. Are you continuing to sell with a different strategy? If the answer is no, then why not? Then change your strategy. If the answer is yes, well, keep doing more of that. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think it was, it was all of the above, though, as, as far as making that decision. I, I, I'd say the most important thing was I knew the company was, was not going to move forward if I became the gating factor for success in sales. And I was the gating factor and we lost sales because I was involved. The other thing as a CEO, it's much better to come in and make that the final, uh, the final uh, pitch to the client when they say, well, I just don't know if I can, the price is just not right there. Can you do this? Can you do that? And as a CEO, you can make those decisions on the fly. Whereas if you're the salesperson, they don't feel you're really that big a company. They're not sure they really trust you, number one. And, and lastly, they're not doing the, they're not beating you up all the way along the process in the sale. They're, they're getting their last chance. And, uh, and you figure out what, what it really takes to turn that sale. But you, you, you just won't be able to catch, catch the nuances of that if you're too involved. So you have to step back. And you, even today, if there's a large customer coming on board, it's a very likely scenario that I'll be involved in the sale. Not at the beginning, more than likely. In the middle, maybe a little bit. And then toward the end, sometimes, uh, sometimes I actually am needed to be involved in almost a daily basis as we wind, this, wind down and make the sale. But uh, that's the exception rather than the rule. And uh, I was only actively involved in two sales uh, last year where we made scores, uh, actually hundreds of sales last year. So uh, I was only involved in two of them. They were our two largest deals. Oh, yeah, once again, I love I love it once again when organizations find like their most important thing. And, and it seems like uh, we, we a lot of times talk on the show about leading and lagging indicators, right? Your lagging indicators are your sales, right? That's your outcome. But right. your leading indicator seemed like your most important thing was this demo, right? You know, that that was like doing the demo right was a critical factor to getting the outcome to getting a sale. Yep. Has that changed much? Is that still one of your most leading indicators or what are the things that you're tracking now to make sure you're doing the right things? So a lead indicator would be the, the demos. Uh, we, we actually uh, have gotten known that I see behind you the, the four disciplines of execution. Uh, that's a book that is highly influential in, in how I think about it. But I do think leading indicators um, in, in as far as uh, we call them drivers um, uh, to, to getting to your goal. Um, they, they, they have to meet two criteria. Do you do them or do they happen? If mm. you do them, they can be a driver or a leading indicator. Um, and are they a habit or not? If, they're, if they can become a habit. Now, so I would even say, believe it or not, 
demos are not a leading indicator. They are, they're really a goal, get so many demos. So what is your habit you're gonna to do to get those demos? Oh, you have to step back and say, oh, I have to do something to get the demos. Yes, because the demos just basically happen. They get on the schedule. Once they're on the schedule, they happen. What do you have to do? So the, the answer might be, we need to make so many phone calls. We need to stop in on so many clients. We, we need to uh, spend so many hours a day uh, reviewing uh, our prospect list. Whatever those things are that are new habits you need to form, every team in the entire company has a goal for the year and they have habits there they, they believe will get them there. And so many times, it's very, very hard, by the way, to implement that four disciplines of execution because, the, because so many people say a lead measure is my demos. If I do four demos a, uh, four demos a week, we'll, we'll hit our numbers. Well, here's the problem. Demos aren't a habit. Demos aren't something you do every day. And so you really have to focus back to your lead measures even more so than I think what the book emphasizes. It has to be a habit. It has to be something you do. It has to be, all, in almost all cases, something you measure every day. If you're only measuring it once a week, it's not a habit. Uh, it's just like brushing your teeth or putting on your clothes or taking a shower. Things you do every day, they can be habits. Things you do once a week, pretty hard to make a habit uh, unless they're you know, uh, around ceremonies like uh, a worship service or something like that, but very, very hard to make weekly things habits. This, by the way, I that whole part was golden that you just talked about. I mean, th this concept of leading and lagging, I think is so misunderstood often in business. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether it's business or your personal life, right? If we're trying to lose weight, going on the scale every day isn't helping you necessarily nope. lose more weight, right? You might be aware, right, of what your weight is, but it's the actions, right, of your food intake and your exercise, your calorie, right, that you're burning each day. That's your actions, right? That lead to the outcome of weight change, right? And, and you were talking about that. I love that concept of, yes, the, the, the demo, if we don't get them the demo, we're probably not going to get a sale, right? In often cases, but what are we doing every day, right? To get people to go to the demo itself. And, and that's the hard work, right? It's the hard work on a consistent basis that we know that's what's going to drive business, which ultimately going to help us close deals. And so I love the, what you described, the importance behind it. So now you're in this next interesting stage of life where you're now, you're now the gorilla in the space, right? You're no longer, um, you, you are doing, you're pretty dominant in, in the market today. Um, now you're in this part, interesting part of where you're, once again, growing organizations. What, do you, what challenges are you finding as you start to integrate with other organizations and you consider acquiring new organizations that's a challenging process, right? That's a whole different thought process when all of a sudden you have to have people who have a completely different culture to get them still to be aligned to get to the same outcomes, right? Of growing your business. What have you learned from that so far? And what are some things you could share with their audience that they could take away before they consider, you know, merging and you know, doing an acquisition with somebody else? Yeah, so uh, I did, I took on my first outside investor in 2019, so 17 years after we started the company, we took our first outside investor. And that was because uh, they offered me the opportunity to merge with my number one competitor. It wasn't clear at all in urgent care space who was number one and who was number two, but it was very clear who was one and two. It just wasn't clear which was one and which was two. So very, very close competitor. It was an opportunity. 
to merge with them, massive, massive uh, uh, opportunity and a massive risk to take because most mergers, particularly of similar sized companies, you, it, Harvard Business Review has looked at this and they, it's very clear, companies grow slower after merger than they did before. They don't hit their targets uh, that they could have hit if they were just independent separate companies. But, but as we went through the, 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 the process, we discovered, for example, all of our leads were inbound. People just coming off our website, people responding to articles I had written, and all of our competitors' uh, leads were outbound. Almost all of them, they were phoning out. And so we found out that we only, we thought we were competing for every customer almost. Turned out there was only 20% overlap in our sales funnel. Um, wow. That was amazing. Turned out that, uh, you know, together we could, we could negotiate way better prices because we were twice as big. Uh, so all of our vendors uh, gave us concessions. And in many cases, you know, if you wanted to be the go-ahead vendor, the go-ahead vendor, you had to beat the other vendor in price. So we just time after time were finding opportunities to save money. Uh, we, we did eliminate very few positions. There were a few executive positions. You don't need two CFOs. You don't need two COOs, obviously, those sorts of things. Um, but other than that, uh, we kept virtually everybody. Um, we, but we found uh, as, we, as we worked together, there was tremendous opportunities to uh, reduce waste in the company. And we found a tremendous amount of waste to reduce. The key though was, and this was, so, this was so key, we had a consultant come in and really spend a lot of time understanding both companies. And I worked very hard to find things in the other company that I had never been involved with. It was our competitor. There was literally a visceral negative feeling between the two companies. Uh, I worked very hard to find what I could find that they were doing right. Uh, because it's easy to find what other people are doing wrong, but what are they doing right? So simple, and very symbolic things were big. So for example, the other company at your five-year anniversary, they gave you a bobblehead doll that you know had your looked sort of like you. And I was like, well, that's cool. I didn't know you could buy bobblehead dolls like that. Actually, I did. I guess somebody had given me a gift, but I, I never thought of giving that as an award for five years. So we took that. We said, that's a great idea. We're going to do that. And as much as possible, when there was a great idea we were bringing from, from the team, the company that I wasn't CEO of. We would we'd make a big deal of that. The other thing we did symbolic, it wasn't symbolic at all. Uh, we took, we had nine executives, three came from the one company, three came from the other company and three we brought in from the outside. So wow. it was really clear that we were, we were respecting the expertise that was there. Um, we did multiple, it, when you bring two software vendors together, you, you have to decide, are you gonna run two separate software companies? which is very expensive, obviously, or are you gonna merge into one software company? Well, in our industry, no one has successfully merged um, without losing a lot of customers. No one has successfully merged two electronic medical records companies. Uh, but in the end, we decided that's what we had to do and we were gonna be the company that proved you could do it. And we're doing it now. Uh, we've wow. taken over or, or, almost 200 uh, clinics from one platform to the other, but here's how, there, there's a real, nuance to this. How do you tell one set of engineers your product that you made, that you put your heart, your sweat and blood into is not the go forward product? And how do you make sure they stay on board? Uh, and it's a challenge. I had a fellow, uh, I, I, I had a fellow who went right after we merged, he said, 
it's okay. I'll, I'll work with this company. Thank you for this big retention bonus. I'll stay on board as long as these bonuses are here. But but uh, uh, if you change, if if I can't work on this platform with this or in this technology stack, I'm I, that's what I do. I'm not going to learn new te technology. Um, and so I I was talking to my my CIO and I said, you know, I know he's going to be leaving because he he won't work in another stack. Uh, we just need to make sure we keep him because he he knows where all the dead bodies are in that software solution. And uh, he said, oh, no, you don't understand. He's doing more than half of his work on the new tech stack. <laughs> and he is. He's doing amazing contributions. But that was because we respected the culture. We respected his, his time. We gave him time to adapt to the new culture. And, uh, you know, certain things you think are going to have. We renamed the company. So we had Practice Velocity and DocuTap, two other two companies came together to form Xperity. And I thought, sure, when we announced the brand name and started handing out the swag and the t-shirts, there were gonna be a bunch of people wearing the old t-shirts from the old company. And at six months or nine months, we'd have to say, you know, new rule, we're just gonna wear Xperity gear. In the, from, in the entire time, from the time we merged till now, I have never seen one person wear a practice velocity shirt or a docutap shirt. But you'll see Xperity gear on folks all over the place. Not wow. one. It just was very, very successful merger. And I will say, you know, we had we did a walk the wall, if you've ever done a process like that, with I think 14 swim lanes, over 400 items that we needed to accomplish in our merger, looking to see which ones we did first, which one were dependent on other ones. Uh, that was really a challenge. But it, it, it gave us a skill in doing M&A that we're going to be start using as we look to bring on other fairly large companies to, uh, to join in and become part of Experity. Wow, that's a great story. Okay, so you've done a great job describing the business side and how you've been successful. You've scaled from beginning to most recent merger activity, which I think is extraordinary. So now I want to go to the personal side a bit. You're a busy guy. You know, you, you've been running clinics and then you talked about you've gone to all your shoveling snow to helping to create software. Now you're in the integration process. This is pretty, can be pretty challenging and at times stressful activities. What type of habits are you doing on a personal basis to help make sure you're performing at your best? Um, so I, here's what I will say. One of the things I, I didn't do well early on is I spent too much time working on the business. Uh, I would uh, basically, I, I would work for uh, 10 to 12 hours in, in during the day. And then as soon as everyone went to bed, I would put another three or four hours every night. Um, the problem is they weren't getting much of anything of me anytime. Um, and on, on vacations, I remember sitting at a ski resort in Utah and Park City, actually, in in the uh, in the Starbucks, uh, doing actually creating templates for doctors to write to document on, <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, it took it took about a minute to do the to do the job. Instead of I was in the office, it would have take three seconds to do. But I was, I was very patient. I just worked through it when I should have been out of the ski slopes with my family. So uh, I've learned that first of all. That what happened there is, is things became very stressful at home over the years. And um, I was very stressed because things weren't going so well at home. And because of that, I, wasn't, I really wasn't able to focus at work or at home, either place. So um, 
Over the last few years, I've done a better job. I would say my wife would still question whether I'm doing a great job at this, but I've done a much better job. And well, she's actually agreed with this. I, I rarely do I work on the weekends, except if it's absolutely necessary. Um, and then just quickly a couple hour phone calls for interviews or something like that. And uh, and in the evenings at five or 5.30, I'm done. Whereas I used to be done around seven or, or so. And it was very sporadic. She could never tell when I was coming home. Uh, if I was, you know, e e even now, uh, I work from home a lot of the time uh, since COVID, it's, it, it, it's, it needed to be a change where she knew when I was coming home, when I was ready to be with the family. So it's made a tremendous difference in, in my house. Uh, and I'm actually able to get a lot more done if I'm not stressed out from a difficult discussion, to say the least, with my wife the night before or that morning. Uh, it's made things a lot smoother. So I would say that was one of the bigger changes. Uh, I do work out every morning. Uh, it's just a habit I've developed over the last few years. Uh, uh, it, nothing fancy, uh, usually on an elliptical or a treadmill, and then a little weight training on, in addition. That's that does I think do a, really help set off the day uh, with with gives you the energy you need for the day. And I think folks who neglect that, they uh, I don't know if you heard this, but Martin Luther said somebody asked him why he prayed so many hours. I don't remember what the number was, and he said he was too busy not to pray. Um, and the, the, on this, I would say if you're if you say you're too busy to work out, you're really too busy not to work out. You need that. You need that workout to give you the energy uh, for for the day, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate appreciate your candor on that. So I'm curious now, how you in your personal life now, how are you measuring success? In my personal life, that's the, the, so. Uh, one of the things uh, I want, uh, I, I believe it or not, I have a seven year old at home, and uh, I, I want her to know she's smart, she's pretty. And she's extremely loved. And uh, so we have a little routine uh, that I say, I love you, Charlie. She says, I love you, Dad. Uh, I say, tiny bit. She says, lots. And I say, oh, you're right. And um, I stopped doing that for a little bit. I thought, oh, she's growing up now. She'll just want to say, I love you. I love you. She said, she came to me and said, why aren't you saying that? It's, it's that really, really great connection that I, I guess is much easier to have with this is my fifth child. Uh, when you start to when you start to do things right, tell her she's awesome. Tell her she's pretty. Uh, wake up with her and make her breakfast for her, which I do every morning, and go over her spelling words with her every morning. The sorts of things I never had time for um, when I was building the company. Uh, that has made life so much more meaningful and so much more. Uh, it's made success so much more successful. And here's I think one of the things when you have. When you've gotten to the point where you can buy anything you want, you can do anything you want, you can retire anytime you want, you don't have to work another day in your life. Then you start to think, well, wait a minute. Uh, what's really happened here? I'm still taking a shower in the morning and the shower is no better than it was before. It's bigger than it was before, but it's really just water running over your body. Uh, you know, I'm still wearing uh, just one pair of pants a day, one shirt. Uh, it, it, you know, just the fact that you have so much more money and you have so much more resources doesn't really change. Uh, and uh, I once heard somebody say, if money, if money got happiness, the happiest people in, in, in America would be in Hollywood. And obviously we know that's not the case because they can't keep their relationships together at all. So, uh, uh, you know, these are, these are not metrics. And I'm a little embarrassed to say I don't have a lot of metrics in my personal life like I do in my business. 
But these are the intangibles that are just so important that, uh, that my wife, my kids, they all will say, I love you to me. And I know they mean it from the heart. That, that's, that's something money can't buy. And a lot of people who have a lot of money can't buy it because they don't have it. And so uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's really investing your emotional energy into the people around you, particularly into your family. Because the reality is, um, my entire executive suite, I spend a lot of time with them all day, all day, every day, one-on-ones and, and stand-ups every morning. But when, it, when I'm on my deathbed someday, none of them are going to be there. But my wife and my kids are going to be there. And uh, they're going to be there because they love me. And hopefully I, I have way less, way less regrets than I would have had if I lived life differently. Well said. Well said. Thank you. I really that was that was one of the most powerful and honest answers I've ever heard from this process that I've gone through. So I really appreciate what you said, how you said it. It's very authentic, genuine. And um, so thank you. I think that's tremendous. I hope once again, people are listening, understand that 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 was you, you have gone through some life lessons through the period. And it's interesting how you've come through and you realize what's really important and how you're measuring success. So I think that's tremendous. All right. So I always love to ask, what's a book that you'd recommend to our audience that you think they should read? It's funny. I've read most of the books I could see the, the title of behind you there. They're all very, very impactful. Uh, depending, I would say it depends on your stage of business where you're at. Um, so uh, if you're just getting into business, read that book, The Great Game of Business, right behind you and read Good to Great. I've read it 10 times, but apply it. I can't tell you how many times when I'm interviewing somebody and ask them for their favorite book and they say Good to Great. And I'm like, okay, tell me about the principles of that book. Well, you got to really work hard. I'm like, that's not one of the principles. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of the hedgehog concept? Um, they don't know. So uh, that book is an incredible book because it doesn't apply just to big businesses. It really applies to small businesses. Uh, for, if, you're in the, if you're looking to say, I need an operating system uh, to get my business to the next level, uh, because right now we've been, we've been becoming the best company we can be because I, the founder, have been working like crazy but you want a system that's going to take over and, and mean that you're systematizing success. And it's no longer you bearing down every day that's the key to the success. Four Disciplines of Execution, another book right behind you, is, is fabulous. And the one that I read most recently uh, that I felt had the most impact on me was The One Thing by uh, Keller. Uh, and basically, uh, it starts out the book with uh, a proverb says, he who, chases, he who hunts two rabbits kills none. Not again, I'm not for killing rabbits per se, but uh, it's an old Russian proverb uh, and it's really true. It's so, he is so clearly says uh, that you have to focus on one thing at a time. Uh, chapter two, I believe it is, multi, it says multitasking is a lie. And he points out, nobody can really effectively multitask. The more you multitask, the less effective you are at anything you do. And uh, Goes back to good to great, the hedgehog concept. What's the one thing your co your company must succeed at, or it will fail? Know what that is. If you don't know what that is, then you probably are going to fail. Uh, so, uh, just the one thing by Keller, really, really impactful. A very easy read, by the way. Much easier than four disciplines of execution. Read it five times, and then good luck if you can execute on it. We had to bring in a consultant, and even then, we struggled. 
Now we have a whole system that is largely, if you if you looked at our whole system, it's called the Experity Operating System. Our, we have a whole system that looks a lot like four disciplines of execution, but we've just taken it to the next level for us to apply it to a specifically to a software company. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's it is said all all those recommendations are fantastic. And I think the key with anything, right, is taking these what I call really solid principle based foundational books, but then applying it to your own business, right? You know, that that's where it really works. When you just try to copy what somebody else is doing, it's not going to work, right? Because it doesn't understand your ethos, your people, your your company necessarily, the way your customers are vendors. But when you apply it and directly understand it and you live and breathe it, that's when all of a sudden you could get these really not just one, two X, three X return, but hundred X return, right? Because it creates exactly. such a difference with it. And, and, you know, Carl, this is very interesting. Uh, I interview executives for my team all the time. And it's very rare that I that I interview an executive that that's actually reading lots of books. And these are all executives have been executives already in multi-hundred million dollar companies. They're all that way. But they're not reading a lot of books. But here's a story. When I go to a CEO retreat with uh, CEOs uh, of hundred million dollar or billion dollar businesses, Every one of them can tell you what, what two or three books they've read in the last two months. And so if you want to be a really successful CEO, uh, that, that tells me you, you, could, you got to be reading books because it's reading an article just gets you an idea. It doesn't actually saturate you with the whole concept, the, pre the premise that the author has. And when your mind gets saturated with that and you interact with it for, for a week or two, you start to see... You, you may only change one or two things in your business, but you'll change it thoughtfully instead of reading an article and say, let's do that. You're going to say, well, I'm not sure it all applies. So uh, I'm just amazed. CEOs read books. And if you want to be a successful CEO, read books. I'm not saying that'll make you successful, but if you're not reading books, I don't think you're likely to be successful as a CEO. I haven't met that person yet. Yeah, the late, great Zig Ziglar said, to be a great leader, you have to be a great reader. And I'm a big, I think it's a wonderful quote because I think it just yeah. stands true to those who are truly making an extraordinary difference because they're learners and they have a growth mindset and they understand they have to change consistently, right? To adapt and grow. And I think that's the key difference. You know, I, I heard one, one person one time shared with me, they said, oh, I stopped reading books because they were all saying the same thing. And I don't know about you, but yeah, you had that, that expression for those who can't hear, you had your mouth dropped. You know, I could, you could read a book every other year or every year and where you are in your life, you'll, you'll discern it differently, right? Because of the knowledge and the wisdom, what you used to have compared to what you have today and then leveraging that, right? For the new insights that you have. Oh, it's really funny to reread re a book that you, you've highlighted and written notes all, all, all throughout. You look at it. Wow. I didn't know that <laughs> 10 years ago, or why did I think that was important? That's not important. <laughs> There's a lot. You just have to continue growth uh, in, in order to lead uh, in order to lead a business towards growth. You have to grow. All right. Finally, how can people connect and learn more about you and your organization? Uh, well, ExperityHealth.com is where is our website. Uh, we have an active uh, social media presence, uh, but uh, but ExperityHealth.com is where we 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 post all kinds of information about our company. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're looking, 
if somebody is looking for a job and likes that what you're hearing about Xperity, all our job postings are available through the website. Well, Dr. Stern, David, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Measure Success podcast today. Thank you. I had a great time. And to everyone else who's listening, I really hope you have appreciated and learned what Dr. Stern has been able to say today. It has been uh, great insights, great wisdom, what he's learned of growing his business over the over you know, a couple decades, right, that you've been able to grow and inspire. And also the parts that you're talking about on the personal side, I think was absolutely extraordinary. So thank you so much for that. To everyone else who's listening, um, we just ask you as always, you know, continue to go out. The reason why we've become one of the top level podcasts is because of your ratings. And so please go out, do ratings on that. That's what helps continue us to grow and get great guests on a consistent basis. So with that, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.